Listener Production. Hello, it is Antoinette Latouf here filling in for Jamila Rizvi today. And welcome to this special series of The Weekend Briefing where Jamila talks to some of her favourite guests, old and new, about a single fascinating subject. So over the next two months, you'll hear from singers, writers, models, actors and changemakers on topics as diverse as the interview subjects themselves. And today you'll hear from Hugh van Seilenberg on resilience. And you might recognise Hugh's voice from the very successful podcast, The Imperfects, which is co-hosted by Ryan Shelton and his brother, Josh van Seilenberg. And in this chat with Jamila, Hugh explains what resilience looks like in the modern day and questions how exactly we become resilient. Hugh Van Kylenberg, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Jamila Rizvi, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm very excited to be chatting to you. Folks, if I sound approximately 100 years older than I did in last week's podcast, it's because I have lived a lifetime in trying to get to talk to Hugh today and we are crossing every part of our bodies that this is actually going to work this time. Hugh, thank you for being here. I just feel like if we could, if you could somehow put together like a highlights package of what's happened to get us to this point, it would be the most incredible lesson in resilience, maybe going around. It's been, yeah, the, everything's been, the world's been against us, but it's happening now. So this is great. Hugh, how long have you been the resilience guy? Oh, uh, great question. Do you know what? It's actually the first talk I ever did on resilience was in 2011. And I was, what was, I? I was 30 years old. I had no kids. I had no partner. And I was living a very blessed life. I don't know what I was doing <laughs> talking about resilience. Honestly, <laughs> I had no, apart from like relationship breakups, I'd had no real adversity. Um, you know, loving parents still together, beautiful siblings I'm very close with, um, a sheltered upbringing in Melbourne. I had no business talking about resilience. Every time I step up on stage now, we'll do podcast talking about resilience now as a father of three who's been through a bit, I feel qualified. <laughs> When I think about it, I think I'm quite similar in that it was probably around that that age, sort of 30, 31, that I had a moment of a big health scare that required yeah. a degree of resilience. And genuinely, before then, I don't think anything bad had ever happened to me. So I, I would have probably called myself a resilient person, but it wasn't grounded in, in much at all. Does resilience require that we've been through a bit? Like, is it something that has to be earned rather than something you're born with? What a great question. Um, you're so good at asking questions. I mean, it's your job, but you're very good at it. Oh, thanks. So my answer to that is that when I was, I, I knew all the theory and I was so fascinated in the topic of resilience because of what my family had been through with my little sister. I mean, I say I hadn't had adversity. We, we had been, been through a lot as a family with my, with my little sister's um, mental illness. Um, but I, so I knew all the research, I knew all the science, and I was so fascinated with the topic of what is it that makes people happy, what is it that makes them cope better in a challenging time. And I'd finish these talks and people would come up to me and they would share their life story and tell me really full-on stuff that they'd managed to get through and or were trying to work their way through. And I always feel a little bit silly going, well, here's the research, here's the science. I've never had to apply it myself really um, because apart from my sister being unwell when I was in my late teens, early 20s, since then I've had a pretty good ride. And now it's funny, I, I kind of, things happen to us and we've been through a little bit as a family, my, my little family with, with our three kids and my wife, Penny, of late. And 
it's funny, like all the science and all the research, I, I know it and I, but there are times where I just go, I don't want to even know about it. I just, this is too hard right now. And all that stuff around gratitude and get stuffed because I'm just, <laughs> just going through it so much. Um, but when I come back to it, it really works. Like I listened to a podcast with a guy, um, like Dr. Tim Conti, I think his name is, one of the world's leading psychiatrists. And he was talking about the thing that leads to people who are resilient and cope well is gratitude and agency. There is two things. And I was thinking, well, I have been banging on about these things for a long time. Um, and the smartest people in the world would say that they work. I think every time you go through something challenging and you get through it, it's like a little notch mm. on your resilience belt and you just get a little bit stronger each time and then the next time something goes wrong and you sort of have this, whether it's conscious or otherwise, this mentality of, well, I've got through that and I've got through that so I'll get through this and then something else happens and that's another notch on your belt. And I, th- I think we do have these toughened, you know, these battle scars that, we look at as evidence that we are able to get through things. I mean, you and I both feel like at age 30, 31, we hadn't really been through anything tough. We'd lived a very blessed life. But when something really challenging came up and, you know, I'm not comparing our family struggles to what you went through with your health, very serious health scares, um, you were equipped, like you you, you got through mm. it. So I think it is always there. We just don't know it's there until we're actually tested. How do you think the way we understand these kind of concepts, bravery, courage, resilience have have changed over time because resilience to me feels like a very modern word, right? Whereas I I, I think about, you know, my, my grandparents, I think about my grandparents on my, on my mum's side who were white Australians and they would have talked about wartime if they were thinking about those kind of terms. Yeah. Yeah. I think about my grandparents on my, on my father's side and they, they probably would have talked about you know, the decision to migrate to Australia, to go to a country they knew nothing about with very little language and, and start all over again. I feel like resilience isn't something that in previous times people have necessarily talked about very much. Yeah, I think it's having not been around those days, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I recall in the 20s. <laughs> I remember in 1956, uh, just before I went to the Olympics, I'm going to assume <laughs> you, that, that you're probably right and that I don't think, you know, my, my same thing with me, my, my grandparents on my dad's side came, brought a young family across to Australia from um, Salon, well, Colombo, but was Salon then in Sri Lanka mm. uh, when my dad was eight and his little brother was six and they got on a boat that took them, I think it was 11 weeks to get from Colombo to um, Melbourne as they were boarding, my grandpa found out he he was told he had a job writing for the Argus and then the Argus um, no longer existed as he was getting on the boat. And so right. they're going there with no job and 300 journalists, sports journalists, all out of work. So wow. um, I, think, I think about that and think, gosh, what a what a brave and to, to step into such uncertainty, what a resilient thing to do. My, 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 my image of generations gone by is they didn't talk about it, they just did it. Whereas I feel like we – we talk about it a lot more and, and we'll assess how resilient we are. I, I think the thing with the word resilience, and I think it is a modern word, and I think we apply modern timeframes to it. Like mm. th- these days we get whatever we want whenever we want it. You know, we if we want music, we just download it straight away. There's no, I'll wait till I get to Brashes or Sanity and buy the CD and, or I'll save up money to get it and then I'll, it could take a couple of months, but I will get that Led Zeppelin album in by, by the school holidays, you know. We just get whatever we want so quickly. And I think people maybe have been applying that to the word resilience as well as in something goes wrong. Okay, well, I 
listen to that resilience guy and I'm practicing gratitude and everything and mindfulness or maybe not me. It's, there's so many other great things you can do, whether it's, you know, exercise or, you know, all, all the different wonderful things you can do to help you cope in a challenging time. Um, people will start doing that and go, well, why aren't I feeling better now? I, I want this to happen now because we're so used to getting whatever we want, whenever we want it these days. And so that is certainly, I think, when you say the word's a modern word, I, I think we need to not apply our um, – getting everything the second we want it mentality to the word resilience because it, it can take, depending on what you're going through, and, and the world is so uncertain at the moment. You know, we we, we used to say um, before COVID, we used to say you never know what's around the corner in life. But I kind of I feel like we did. I feel like we did know what was around the corner in, to, to a certain extent. Now after COVID, I feel like, you know, I never thought a global pandemic could really happen. I never thought a war would ever really happen. Yeah. Um, AI is just I mean, that's what terrifies me more than anything right now. The more I read about it, the more I listen to about it, um, the uncertainty that comes with that. Um, these are really, really uncertain times and resilience, I think, or coping is, is a really important tool. I mean, that's why I, I guess, dedicated my life to teaching it to kids. Yeah. I didn't realise when I started back in 2011 it would be as important as it is right now, but um, we certainly, gosh, we certainly need it right now. So a lot of your work is with kids and, you know, I'm a parent as well and I, I feel like that is a conversation parents have a lot where we talk about raising kids that are resilient and I'm I'm not talking here about kids who are already facing enormous challenges and we know there are kids facing enormous yeah. challenges when they're, when they're really young. But the kids that perhaps like you and me had pretty delightful upbringings for the most part how do you teach those kids resilience when they haven't had the exposure to the very events that they need to be resilient to get through? Yeah, I, I would like to think so. Our school curriculum, I think there's about, oh, I'm probably getting this wrong, but I think there's about half a million kids around Australia doing our curriculum every day. Um, wow. And I think if you asked any one of them about the resilience project, if you said you're learning resilience, I, I'm, I'm hoping they would say, no, I, I don't want them to to think. Oh, we have to practice being. We have to learn about resilience or learn about mental health. I want them to love doing the activities that come with the curriculum. Love the content that they're watching on their screens every day, and feel like it's entertainment. And they are learning without even really knowing it. They're learning preventative strategies so that when, not if, when something goes wrong in their life, they will have tools and strategies to kind of get through it. So. I'll give the example of, of gratitude, which I think it might annoy some people. People are probably sick of me talking about gratitude, but it just really being the ability to pay attention to what you've got, not what you don't have. And I think mm. in really tough times, we really focus hard on the stuff we don't have. Like we, we a lot of us will have a very big, um, woe is me type mentality when things go wrong. I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe this is happening. Right now, my three-year-old daughter who has this beautiful disposition towards She's a really joyous kid and her brother's challenging her with that at the moment. But she's a really joyous kid and, you know, with a blessed life. She's so lucky um, to have all the stuff she has in her life. And But every single night at dinner, she answers the question, well, she now guides a conversation. I, for a while ago, six months ago, I started saying, what was everyone's favorite thing today? Because the way you practice gratitude, one of the ways to practice gratitude is answer the question, what went well for me today? Yeah. Um, and try and think of three things. And so we just do, what are your favorite things that happened today? And she will now start that conversation. She'll say, everyone favorite things. And she comes up with beautiful answers to, she will name usually two or three things. That's teaching her to be resilient. So when when something goes wrong in her life at some point, she is she has learned 
the ability to scan the world for the good stuff. Not Mm. saying we bury our head in the sand and say there's not bad stuff happening, but she very much has the ability. She's trained for a very long time to pick out the good stuff in her day Mm. so she doesn't get sucked in by or, or sucked down by the negative stuff. Is there a role for parents here as well? Because I worry sometimes that I spend a lot of energy trying to remove obstacles from my kid's life because I don't want him to experience sadness or discomfort or frustration. And, you know, I, I'm not the parent that, like, calls up the other parent and says, Billy was rude today and he needs to be, a, I, you know, I would like to be because I feel the fury uh, if someone's rude to my kid. But, you know, I'm, if we go to the zoo, I'm making sure we got snacks and that we've got drinks and that we never for a second have to be like, oh, no, I was hungry for five yeah. minutes. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, making sure there are changes of clothes and making sure that we're cutting crusts off sandwiches. I actually refuse to cut cuts, crusts off sandwiches, but I do a lot of other stupid stuff. Sometimes I worry that, I, like, I spend so much time trying to eliminate discomfort that I've removed that resilience-building activity from from his life. It is my greatest challenge as a parent is that trying to walk that line. It's and if Penny, my wife, is listening right now, she'll be going, "Do not ask you." He is. He does not know the answer. Yeah, he's terrible at this. Um, I'm cutting crusts off sandwiches. It's just I'm so embarrassed. I mean, the stuff I've been telling parents all around Australia for the last. 15 years around um, we need our kids to fail, they need to go through adversity, they need to struggle, they need to fail, um, they need to make mistakes, it's so important. And then, you know, they'll say, can we have an ice cream this afternoon? And I go, no, because you had a cake this morning. And I'll go, please. And I'll go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I. I, Yeah, it's um, easier. It's easier. Yeah, it's easier. It makes my life a lot easier. I don't have to put up with, you know, whinging and whining and uh, get five minutes of quiet while, yeah, I mean, the role of it. That's huge, the role we play as parents. I, I think the little things that we do every single day, they add up. And I am I'm working really hard at the moment on trying to find the right balance between letting them make mistakes, letting them – I can't remember who said this. It's a beautiful bit of advice. But anything your kids can do themselves, just let them do it themselves. Mm. I think about that every single time. I pick him up from school, like a six-year-old from school. He's got a heavy bag on his back. I'm like, well, but he can carry it. He can carry this. It's heavy, but he can get it to the car. For me, that's a symbol of – I mean, there are so many other examples of how you can do it. Yeah. The research and the science would say the more we if, – if a child can do something by themselves, let them do it by themselves and discomfort is good for them. Um, again, this is this is very much for a neurotypical child. I, I don't think this stuff applies for yeah. neurodiverse kids. I think it's a completely different ballgame for them. Um, I think a big part of being a parent of a neurodiverse child is fighting battles for them. That, that's your life. You are fighting battles for them 24-7 and so that stuff doesn't apply. When you started talking about this stuff publicly and, and this started to become you, your work rather than something that was just part of your, your own life, that also required a degree of vulnerability. And I think, you know, vulnerability and resilience are very much interlinked. But again, at 3031, it's kind of easy to be vulnerable when your own vulnerability only goes so far, right? Yeah. The more life you live and the more complex life gets and the more your life becomes intertwined with others, the harder it is to be vulnerable. And that's something you've kept doing and you've done on television, on radio, on podcasts. Where does that 
courage come from? Because it, I do think it's a courageous thing to be vulnerable and it does get harder as you get older. Yeah, two things on that. So I have a very simple answer to that that question. But, but before I answer it, the what I have noticed is that I always thought life would just get easier and easier and easier the older you get. But to me, it's been the opposite. I found it gets harder and harder. And mm. the more I realize about the world, the more I realize I have no idea about stuff. The amount of times when I'm asked about, I, I would I would never go back and watch interviews I've done on TV about resilience from from years ago because the more I learn about them, the more I just don't know. And it's funny how mm. often we talk with certainty about things. <laughs> well, this is this and this is the way this is and experts will talk about this. But I think so often we don't really know as much as we think we do but as far as being vulnerable the, the reason I continue to do it is well I think it's a really good thing to model to the world but the reason it's easy for me to do not easy for to do but just the connection it leads to every single time I'm vulnerable and share something with the permission of other people in my life it just opens up these incredible connections whether it's a complete stranger coming up to me and saying oh the episode you did with well, we did an episode on our podcast uh, the imperfects with my wife where we talked about how she taught me about the mental load of being a mum and how... Oh, yeah, I listened. Yeah, yeah. And there was so much, there was so much stuff that she was carrying with her, like the um, anything, it's like, it's like the, the mental load is the invisible tasks in a, in a relationship, the stuff that like, I think my brother gave the best analogy. He said he feels like he's doing shift work where his partner and the mother of his child is doing, is running the business. Mm. And so he will clock in, clock out, be fun as fun as he can, give as much energy and think he's doing a great job, which he is. But he's not then going, well, the kids need to go to school in two years' time, so I need to start looking at schools. I need to start going to school tours. I need to start filling out forms. Also, their toothbrushes are not looking great. I need to buy some new toothbrushes. Also, our eldest is growing out of his pants. I'll have to order some pants from him. We'll go and take him shopping. So often the dads don't think about that. And so when we did that episode – I got stopped by so many, mainly females, uh, but just saying stuff like, I think this has actually saved our relationship. I think that episode, you talking about, and that was a vulnerable thing to do because I was in one hand admitting to the fact that I wasn't the partner I thought that I was. I thought, mm. I thought I was like this, like, yeah, I try so hard with the kids and I'm always around and I'm, you know, I'm exhausted all the time. I always get up to the kids at night, but I was in admitting that I wasn't a part of was, but also I was worried that men were going to just like hate me and go, oh my God, mate, what have you done? Like, <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I did get a bit of that. I did get a, a few people saying, a few guys saying some snide remarks about how thanks for ruining everything. But I'm like, no, you're just being lazy. That's all it is. And yeah. you've, you've, been, you've been called out. So, um, but the, the beautiful comments I got from people saying that you sharing that, has opened up a whole new world in my relationship with my partner and you've saved our relationship, stuff like that, the connections you get from that make it all worthwhile and make me go, yeah, I, if I'm struggling with something, provided it doesn't imply someone else too much, I'm going to share it mm. because it's just it leads to beautiful connections with people. This stuff's particularly complex, right, because you, you aren't operating in a vacuum that's separate to the world around you and the expectations around you. And the reality is that the average person who hears about your approach to being a parent and to work around the house, the average human being is going to go, oh, my God, what a great dad. What a great partner. Penny, you are so lucky. And I'm yeah. not saying that Penny isn't lucky. I'm sure she's very lucky, but so are you. And yet if she was doing that amount, it would reflect very differently on her. I, you know, I always think of times when my husband has got applause for doing the bare minimum 
And if I had done the same thing, at best, people would have not noticed. And at worst, they would have rolled their eyes that I wasn't trying hard enough. And yet for him, it's a glorious achievement because we do still hold those different standards and they're embedded in so much of our beliefs about people and how the world works. You know, even the stupid made-up rubbish of women are better at multitasking, women are better at, there's nothing biological that makes women better at multitasking. Women just don't have a choice a lot of the time. It's so hardwired. Even I caught myself the other day. I saw a dad. He had three kids. He had a pram, one in a pram, one on a scooter, one on a little skateboard attachment to the pram. And I was, he was walking his kids along on like it was a Wednesday morning. And I was like, oh, good on him. What a good guy. And I was like, no, hang on a minute. <laughs> what? Like, what? Like, yes, that's good. He's doing that. But like, if his wife was doing it, I don't reckon I would have noticed. Yeah. I just don't think I would have gone, good on her. Like, it's just, it's so ingrained in us. And I think because for so many of us, that's what we, sort of grew up with and yeah my, my dad worked from seven till six um every single day and but even i was saying that to mum i was like oh i'm trying to do what i didn't see him mum was like well, what you don't understand is back then your dad was much better like much better than the average person because when he got home mm. he was on like he was in the pool with you guys in the backyard with you guys he was so present for all of it and that a lot of kids didn't get that so yeah it's it's hard us we've just got to get better at, at um yeah, it's such a good point because I I so often will get looks from people when I'm out with the kids. I can see them going, "What a great guy!" They're like going, yeah. "Hey, if just that's okay. Thanks for the credit." But if you see my wife doing this tomorrow, can you please say, "What a great girl!" <laughs> She's also doing a great job. And look, I, you know, not to put all the pressure on on you, I think that you know the flip side of this is all of us hold one another to those gendered expectations as well. I think we all have to go to therapy is my summary. We all need to go to therapy. (laughs) More therapy. And that's going to bring me to a question where I want to start to wrap this up. But are you someone who seeks that kind of help? And when did you first look for help if life felt pretty rosy and shiny until age 30, 31? Well, I I mean, I have to say even when I was 31, it was still great. It was sort of – it was until the – enormity of the task of parenting really set in around the time COVID happened and we our second child was eight months old and she'd never, ever, ever stopped. That is a high degree of difficulty. Yeah, that's when I realised I'd been running around Australia telling everyone, no matter how you're going, you should see a therapist, but I wasn't doing it myself. And so at that point I th- thought, I think I need to. And I saw a psychologist every second week for all of 2021, 2022. Um, haven't much this year, started again literally last week, um, had a refresher session with her, which was great. Um, and Penny and I have been getting counselling uh, now for probably about a year, I think it is. Uh, we had our first ever session of counselling um, when she was 40 weeks pregnant with our third. Ooh. It's amazing. Like it's just getting an expert to to give you some practical strategies to, well, first of all, get stuff out of your head. I think the more stuff you get out mm. of your head, then also to they organize it into this like this portfolio of what's in most what, what's most important because I think so often in relationships or in your own life you pick the easiest thing that you think you need to work on or, or it may not be the most pressing but you'll pick something and go that's the problem the problem is that Penny doesn't care if the kitchen bench is dirty and I, I do care I always want it cleaned and she messes mess it up and that annoys me yeah you'll pick that but there's something so much bigger going on that an expert will help you work out what it is and then give you some practical stuff you can go away and work on and um and and also what they do is they they will often get you to just communicate how things make you feel I'm talking about relationship counseling here but 
when with your partner you talk about how something makes you feel rather than this is what you do. I don't like how you do this. Why do you do that? It's like, so when you do that, I feel like this. And so often when you hear how your partner feels about something, it just opens up a totally new outlook on it, an empathetic outlook that makes you want to change as opposed to I can't believe I have to do this. I love that. I also think that when you're finding someone to help you in that space, we often think it's a one-trick thing. Like, you yeah. you know, you go and you find someone and then it's done. But you do, you know, A, have to shop around yes, uh, yeah. for the right person for you. And then B, I think, recognise that even the right person for you today might not be the right person for you in a few years because you're going to be shifting and changing as well. Um, your needs are going to shift and change at the same time. It was like dating. It felt so much like dating. Mm. I'd sit down with this person and go... I don't have much of a connection here. Not that you need to have <laughs> an emotional connection, but just like if you're going to tell everyone, someone everything about your life, you want to feel like you're in safe hands. And I just, I remember once, well, this is so petty, but actually it's not petty. When I was the first place I went to to see a psychologist, before she said hi, she waved the F plus machine in my face and she said, and she said, are you here? Yep. She goes, do you mind if we just do the payment now? I hate walking downstairs. And I was like, well, hang on. Nah. <laughs> What? So that last one session, the next one I went to was a guy who um, he had this really nice coffee machine in his office, in his like, I don't call it an office, but whatever they call their rooms. And I didn't want a coffee. It was too late in the day. But he said, I'm just going to make myself a coffee, all right? And he didn't offer me one. And I just thought, surely, I mean, the person that I'm going to sit down with and have this conversation with, I'd like them to have the social skills to understand that you should be offering someone a coffee if you're making yourself one. It was so petty, but I just straight away I was like, nah, this doesn't feel right. And then the third one I had was just the second I, I met her, I was like, yep, this is it. This is the one. <laughs> I, uh, I've i been similarly judgmental about dream catchers on walls. I was like, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm here for the science. I'm not here for the dreams. The dreams are for other people, not for me. Yeah, uh, well, we all have our things that, that will, will turn us either towards a person or away from them, and I, I totally respect that. Uh, well, Hugh, despite enormous challenges and ridiculous amount of rescheduling and panic and lateness and both of us being disasters of humans, uh, thank you for showing the resilience to get us to recording this podcast. I really at- appreciate everything that you've said and shared today. Jam, this will be one of my three things went well around the dinner table today. I've been such a big fan of yours for such a long time. It's, it's always exciting talking to you. So thank you so much. Some really fascinating takeaways from that chat between Jamila and Hugh. And that's it for this episode of The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you want to get more of The Briefing podcast, the best thing to do is to download the Listener app and there you can follow The Briefing or you can follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So that is it for this week. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.